warm welcome to discussion on how stronger partnership working can build better mental health services. COVID's had a massive impact on how we live our lives, what we're able to do, and then where are we able to access the things that keep us in a good place in terms of mental wellbeing. And what we see is an increase in need for our services from people who haven't used them before. Where you have good mental health services, like in hospitals, in accident emergency, long-term physical conditions in hospitals, you take the pressure off the other parts of the system. It is absolutely right and proper that as a country, we look Look at the elective recovery. It's not right that we are not paying the same attention or putting the same focus on the equivalent impact that has happened in mental health and learning disability and autism services. The last round of investment, disappointing that mental health didn't get its proper fair yeah. share and we really can't let that continue as we go forward. Yeah. When we look at the pressure at the moment that's very visible in A&E, most of those people who turn up, we know with an earlier intervention, more investment in the community, more investment in prevention, we wouldn't have had the sort of pressure we have. I'm Sean Duggan, I'm the Chief Executive of the Mental Health Network for the NHS Confederation, and we have Melanie Walker, who's Chief Executive of Devonshire Partnership Mental Health Trust. We're just going to have a discussion about stronger partnerships We'll cover provider collaboratives and we will also talk about the future with mental health being part of the integrated care systems in going forward, some of the challenges and some of the opportunities. And the first point is really just a sort of background. How has COVID impacted on people's mental health and well-being? And of course, if you ask a chief executive of Mental Health Trust, it is a very good person to ask because she will be very aware of the pressures and the challenges. Melanie, would you like to kick us off? Yeah, sure. Hi, Sean. So in terms for all of us, COVID's had a massive impact on how we live our lives, what we're able to do, and then where are we able to access the things that make our lives easier, happier, keep us in a good place in terms of mental well-being. And so it's not surprising, is it, that all of us will have had times that we find it difficult. I certainly do. So it's not surprising then, given what we know about mental health and well-being and mental illness, that there is an impact on all of us. And what we see coming through services nationally is an increase in need for our services from people who haven't used them before. And that would be for services like IAP services, so psychological therapies. And if people are listening and they don't know what they are, they are something we should be absolutely pushing in our communities and across the NHS and social care for footprints for people who need a bit of extra help. And there's a lot of work and it's a very strongly evidence based piece and it gives people support. And in particular, I just want to flag for staff, NHS, social care, blue light staff, people who've had a real challenge doing COVID, it's there to help them too. But what we also know, and we've seen across the country and across the world as well, is those people who were already carrying a burden of inflicted by an inequality or more than one inequality, have taken a bigger burden of COVID. And that's true for people from all different sorts of communities. But in particular, I think we must note the black and minority ethnic communities and the disproportionate impact COVID has had on them and acknowledge that. But then what for mental health services, what that means 
is the additional pressure and stress of that and the consequences of that for people and communities who already carry a significant impact of inequality and injustice. I think the other bit that I'd really want us to flag is those people who already had a mental illness, and I, I use the phrase mental illness deliberately, so serious mental illness and or a learning disability or autism or another neurodevelopmental disorder have been particularly impacted by COVID and the restrictions of COVID. And we know those groups already face some of the biggest inequalities that we see. So their life expectancy, for example, is on average 15 to 20 years less than their peers. That group have found it particularly challenging. And we now see coming through services, people who are very unwell, who have got on by, but now the pressure of it all is really impacting. And certainly across the country, mental health services and learning disability services are reporting significant increases in activity, significant increases in referrals, and significant increases in how unwell people are when they are referred. So we call that acuity, but how unwell people are when they arrive. And I think one of my other observations would be, it is absolutely right and proper that as a country, we look at the elective recovery for the nation that's really important. I also think it is not right, and I'm very clear about that, that we are not paying the same attention or putting the same focus on the equivalent impact that has happened in mental health and learning disability and autism, other neurodevelopmental disorder services, who already were significantly behind in investment. And I think we need to be really clear about that and understand how we might begin to address that. 100% support there for all of what you said, but your last point in particular, we won't achieve anywhere near parity of esteem if we don't continue with the investment and the support for mental health alongside the physical support. So the last round of investment, disappointing that mental health didn't get its proper fair share, and we really can't allow that to continue as we go forward. The only additions I would say to that is a lot of organisations have been compiling the evidence as to the pressures in the mental health services. And just to bring out a couple, uh, the Centre for Mental Health, they did a very comprehensive survey a little while ago now, right in the middle of the pandemic. They were estimating that 8.5 million adults and 1.5 million children and young people over and above what is existing now for mental health. So we'll need additional mental health support or mental health support for the first time. And these are really quite significant numbers. And then the Health Foundation tried to put some pounds and pennies mm. on it and said that over the same time scale, that would mean an extra 1.6 billion to 3.6 billion to ensure that we can cover the increase in the demand. Yeah. The You're absolutely right to flag that. There is some very clear evidence and good work done. So this isn't work that people have a feeling that it's busier. There is evidence for the things we're talking about. And we need to make sure that people understand that. And I know the Federation has been doing some work on that with NHS providers as well to flag those issues yeah. that are really important. Yeah. We move on. Has the pandemic realised positive changes within mental health services and the wider system? And how can we ensure we retain the positives? Well, the answer is absolutely yes. And that's, I think, been the case across health and social care. But Melanie, in particular for mental health, what would you say with your trusts and your partners in your your area that the positives for the pandemic? 
So there were some positives, undoubtedly. And I was talking to some staff last week about it. They were extraordinarily positive in incredibly difficult circumstances, a very realistic perspective, but wanting, as always, to do their best by the people they work with, but also being really clear that actually there was an an opportunity through COVID to work in a different way. So some of the barriers we actually, we realise we self-inflict a bit, we cut through, and that's true across the country. We were able to move to 24-7 helplines for people across the country and have universal coverage across England. We were able to use digital support, and we need to be careful with that and use it widely. But actually, in my trust, we moved in a way I could never have imagined We were already using things like Silver Cloud and Attend Anywhere, um, but our utilisation of those shot through the roof. And for many people, they were really, really helpful and they were a way of connecting and engaging. And some people still want to use those, but for some people, they were a necessity and actually we don't want to keep using those. And I think one of the conversations we're starting is what's the therapeutic environment so that we look at digital engagement and physical engagement and an estate as a whole people can dip in and out of and use when appropriate the other really enormous bit which made a huge difference in terms of delivery of care directly was actually how focused we were about things and activities and we already actually in my trust had quite a lot of activities on wards or connected to wards but we'd up that and that's seen huge benefits. And we're trying to work out how we can keep doing that as the COVID money is stepped down across the country. So we're having a look at that, but that made a huge difference. And then the third thing I would add is for staff, we had a massive focus on well-being and support and staff have really appreciated that. And it's that now helping inform what we keep and how we design our permanent offer of support to staff because none of what we do in the NHS can be done without good staff and perhaps mental health, learning, disability, autism services more than any, uh, you know, we don't have kit, we don't have operating theatres rightly, and we don't have stuff in that way. I mean, the whole NHS and social care provision is about personal interactions with people, but even more so in mental health and learning, disability and autism services, I would argue as a general nurse after, yeah, so even I can say that. And then so I'd said, fine, I've just thought of one more thing, which I really should have said at the beginning. What helped us in Devon particularly was a really strong focus on working across the system. And so our colleagues in primary care were fantastic about supporting vaccination programmes for people who we were really worried about, who were vulnerable. Our colleagues in a neighbouring mental health organisation, Live Well Southwest, we shared bed arrangements and contingency if people had COVID and needed to be admitted. We had shared working with Acute Trust about how we managed Corsini and a lot of that has maintained and we build on that. To add, these things happen if you've got good, strong leadership. There's been incredible, as you said, transformation and crisis, not just the mental health trust, but also the voluntary sector stepping up. And people can get access to the crisis now right across the country. It it is really good to see, but it takes good, strong 
compassionate leadership during this time to understand the feelings and stuff that have been going through. And I think a little bit of NHS England money around well-being hubs was really helpful because yeah. it was yeah. just a little bit of investment there for organisations to come together and provide a bit of extra help to staff, which was, yeah. which was and that needs to continue because the point about the pressures now in the system are with us for a few years more this year. Yeah. Physical aspects, you can give a sort of more robust timeline, you mm. know, we, we will come out of COVID. Yes, there's long COVID, which we need to consider, but the mental health aspects will last for a period of time afterwards. And sense I, think, yeah. I think that's absolutely right, Sean, and I think it has given a permission, which is really useful, to talk about the mental health impact of difficult things on yeah. people, yeah. the public, patients, and on staff, we run the Devon Hub for all yeah. health and social care and blue light services. And actually looking, I, obviously I can't identify individuals, but we can see the themes coming through. And there are themes coming through that have, you know, a bit like we were talking about people who need our services, who people are having a very difficult time and COVID just pushed down and where people's resilience and coping has been extraordinary and I think it's very interesting that how we connect that back with the NHS yeah, plan yeah. and the social yeah. care. No, that's absolutely, absolutely vital. So a couple more areas that we'd like to cover. One is about integrated care systems. So Mel, from your point of view, the formation of ICSs, what does it mean for mental health services? What are the challenges and opportunities? Mm. So I think it's a a fantastic opportunity for mental health and learning disability and autism services, but not just for the services, because the point of an ICS is it covers a population and is responsible for well-being, prevention of illness of all types, early treatment, and then ongoing care when necessary. So that's true for all services. And the opportunity for mental health is part of that too. The opportunity to have somebody at an organisation or a system that looks at it in the totality is there is an understanding, and particularly the work on impact and population health, etc., about how those types of things impact on all services and how all patients are impacted on those types of things. But I think perhaps the biggest opportunity is... How do we make sure that our services are so that when we look at prevention, we look at people's needs as around physical and mental health care and how they connect. So I don't turn up at my GPs and say, today, I'm a physical health person. I would go and say, so the last time I went, very happy to talk about wasn't long after my mama died, but I also had a physical health issue. And actually, that was the conversation I had about how I was. I have a very good GP. She asked me how I was feeling and knew my mum had died and made those connections and those types of decisions, but we need to embed it more. We also need to look at how, when we're designing services, we design them in a way that reduces the number of times people have to tell their story, but also provide support to people so that they live, one, if they can get better, they do, but also because If we really focus on reducing health inequalities, we know that's better for the individuals concerned. It's better for communities because it means those communities have more access to work, to education, to the things that make communities flourish. 
And we know then the outcomes for individuals, communities, and the whole population are better. And by working as an ICS with our partners, the health and social care system, working with the voluntary sector, business, the wider local authority connections, etc., that will make a huge difference because what we see is often as a consequence of when those other things weren't aligned. So yeah. the opportunity to do that is fantastic. And then to align services so that they are modern, evidence-based, they make best use of resources, yeah. will always be limited, however much you know extra we've got, and that we are focusing on the things that make the biggest difference. Melanie, you have run mental health organisations, some very experienced. You've also run acute hospitals. What about the issue of, well, you know, and we hear it all the time, don't we? Well, we're worried going into integrated care systems because the acute hospitals and the physical side of things will be a priority because people have been dying during COVID and etc. Good mental health, and we've seen this in the past where mental health has not had the attention that it needs, but we're right up there at the moment and we need to keep that momentum going. Is there a risk there that the acute side and physical side of things will get more of the attention and mental health and learning disabilities won't get the right sort of investment and value going forward? I think it is a risk, but it's It goes back to your comment, we used to talk a lot about parity of esteem. You touched on it earlier. We've made progress on that. That's undoubtedly true. It's not where it needs to be yet. But the opportunity of it is that if we go back to what's the purpose of ICS is to look at whole populations, to work with communities, to focus on reducing inequalities and making best use of shared resources, then that's the opportunity. And if we're doing this about, uh, there's still a few announcements to be made, but in the last couple of weeks, nearly all ICS chief execs have been appointed and announced and chairs. There's a cohort of people there who truly believe are committed to driving a different discussion and making sure we tackle. And I think the learning from COVID, we knew those inequalities that have been exacerbated. So actually... We can't put what's happened right for the people that died or the people who've suffered. But what we can do is honour their memory by taking the learning and honour the impact on all of us, you know, on staff, on the country, by making sure that we really now move forward to tackle all aspects of inequality so that those sorts of things wouldn't happen again. Yeah. But we connect that to how we make sure we have a really modern health and social care service, which is based in prevention and early intervention, so that we see much less pull on acute services in particular, but all secondary care services. And certainly, wouldn't it be fantastic if I could shut my services, not planning on it, but just in case anybody listens and worries, but because they weren't needed anymore. And when we look at the pressure at the moment, that's very visible in A&E, but it's also true in other aspects of the service. Most of those people who turn up, we know with an earlier intervention, more investment in the community, more investment in prevention, we wouldn't have had the sort of pressure we have. I know, and you know, in conversation with mental health chief exec colleagues, that there is huge pressure on mental health services at the moment. 
the ICSs are a fantastic opportunity. Good. I'm glad you, and I do believe that. I, I do believe that. Of course there are, there are risks, but, you know, looking at the development of them so far, you're quite right. When you see the plans, mental health features, without a shadow of a doubt, it, yeah. is, a, it is a priority. And I think one of the things that we need to do in the mental health world is to articulate repeatedly about you don't get good physical health if you have poor... Without good mental health, health. yeah. And yeah. then two are, are absolutely dependent on each other. And where you have good mental health services, like in hospitals, in accident emergency, long-term physical conditions in hospitals, where you have good mental health services, helping the ambulance services and primary care, you know, you take the pressure off the other parts of the system. I think that's right, Sean. However... The reason we need a lot of those is because there hasn't been investment further upstream. So we need to do both. And my worry at the moment is, so if we think about the significant investment that's been in mental health services over the last few years, that was based on a pre-COVID position and was never to completely close the gap. A lot of the discussion is about how we're using the money we're getting in order to address some of the acute pressures. And just before we close, we must talk about provider collaboratives. You run some of the first provider collaboratives in, you know, provider collaboratives across the health and care system now. They're good. And we have to say that actually they started in mental health. And your discussions with my predecessor, Stephen Dalton, actually it was designed in the mental health network. So I think I'm proud of the achievements that provider collaboratives have made. So would you like just in closing, really, just give us your view and provider collaboratives, where the future might be for them and how they will fit in with ICSs? I'm obviously very pro them because I, as you said, have been very involved in them. There are things that have to evolve. Last week we were having a discussion in the Southwest with all the chief execs who run mental health services for part of that collaborative about what next and how do we evolve and yeah. that's really important. And actually how now we've got ICSs which we didn't have when we started, how do we work with them? And that's an evolving conversation. For me, it's actually quite simple. They are two things and they're connected things. So first of all, they should be the delivery engine rooms of ICSs. So what's the model? The models can vary a bit, but how do we make sure that clinicians, people who use services, how do we get the right people in the room to say, this is the evidence we have. This is the resource we have. This is the transformation pathway we've designed together. Let's go and do it. And actually... Provider collaboratives are really clinical and for mental health and learning disability, autism services and patient co-production and delivery. So if a system really wants change, what it can't do is hold all the decision and discussion up because it won't happen. It's absolutely about getting resources and decision making as near to the delivery place as possible and working to make a difference. And the benefits we've seen in our provider collaborative and in the learning of that into Devon for our local services, particularly through COVID, is if you give people evidence, the practice evidence, the statistical evidence, population health management information, the experiential staff from people who use services, the voluntary sector knowledge, put that together, you come and create the pathways or services or whatever it is you're trying to tackle then you come out with a much better outcome great thank you very much well i think we'll leave it there melanie really grateful thanks sean nice to talk to you as always so thank you for joining us today we hope you found this podcast useful you can find out more about integrated care and access further resources by visiting england.nhs.uk forward slash integrated care You've been listening to a podcast produced by Robert Mulligan. 
for NHS England and NHS Improvement.